This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title Short Studies for Young People. And last time we met together we opened our consideration of the Gospel according to John. I remind you that we looked at it from the point of view of the parable of Matthew 22 when after rejecting the invitation to the marriage of the king's son the king sent his armies, burned up the city and went sent out into the highways and we seem to have there a suggestion as to where the gospel of John comes in. It comes in after the rejection of the people of Israel and is addressed to the highways, the world, instead of to Israel. We contrasted it with Matthew chapter 10 which says the gospel according to Matthew was limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel but John 10 says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. And then you may remember we found that John went out of his way to translate words that every Jew knew, like Rabbi and Messiah. So it looks as though the Gentile world was in view when John wrote his Gospel. Then we turn to the 20th chapter because he has left it on record the chief object he had in view. Uh, we search some of these epistles and gospels to discover, if we can, what was in the writer's mind. But here we've simply got to read what he said. He said there was a whole series of signs that our Saviour worked, but he had chosen the few that are here with this object, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. Well, that brings us to our present study. The word which John chose was the word sign. Many other signs. Now in the Gospel according to Matthew they are called miracles. And the word miracles stresses the idea of a very wondrous power being exhibited. But in John there's still wondrous power being exhibited but he's hoping that you'll see that they have a meaning. They're pointing in one direction. They're trying to show you from the many uh, different angles this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And his supreme object is to bring life through his name to those who believe. Well now, without more ado, because these 20 minutes go so quickly, I'll just sketch out for you these signs. Uh, we should be doing mainly spade work in these two, only exhibiting the material. I'm leaving it to you afterwards to search and see and make these things your own. We find these eight signs are grouped in an ordinary introversion, that is to say the first one balances the last, the second one balances the seventh, because there are eight of them all together, the third balances the sixth, and the fourth and the fifth are in the centre. So you see, it's like um, a long V on its side. Now the first one, and the last one, have many things in common. Uh, which you can find out by looking at the one and balancing the other. But we'll just see how it is introduced in John, the second chapter. The third day, if you go back into the first chapter, you'll add up the days that are mentioned, I won't find the passages for you, and you'll discover that the third day on top of those brings you to the seventh day. And the seventh day takes you to the great prophetic period, the day of the Lord, when the marriage supper of the Lamb is now going to take place. And John, who wrote his Gospel, wrote about the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of the Revelation. So that's another little hint for you to work out separately. 
Uh, don't get so many of these heads working about that you get confused. You have all the time. I have 20 minutes. Now it says, in the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. It looks as though they were called, but they had no distinctive place. Uh, Mary apparently was a friend of the, of the uh, folks who were having the marriage, and her son and his followers went there as guests. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Now, in the ordinary way, that wouldn't have been anyone's business except those who were regulating the feast. But Mary was always conscious that this son of hers had a work to do, and she was wondering. She often mentioned it to him apparently, and he had to say to her, Not yet, not yet. And he said to her, knowing what was in her heart, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. But she wasn't rebuffed by those words. She said to the servants, Whatsoever he said unto you, you do it. She still guessed that something was going to take place by her very attitude. Now there was there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Well now you'll find that that works out to roughly about nine gallons each. Well, you get nine gallons six times over. Uh, that has been a, a cause of surprise to many people. Why should Christ make six nines? How many ever is that well? Why, some, some have computed um, 130 gallons, others 162 gallons. Whatever they do, it seems a tremendous lot, doesn't it? For a little village wedding. And the trouble is that they've misunderstood one word. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now. Now that's where the, the snag has been and where the mistake has been. It is assumed that these servants came and filled those water pots to the brim with water. All those gallons. And then he said, Draw out of those water pots and take all that wine to the leader of the feast. No, no. The word draw out has a distinctive meaning and is never used like that. In the fourth chapter, you'll find it again, used in exactly the same context, and she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water, that I may thirst not, neither come hither to draw. To draw. It always means to draw out of a well. And in the Old Testament, with joy they draw water out of the wells of salvation. It never is used, never is used for drinking out of a cup or something. I've tried to illustrate it before, and I do it again, as though somebody coming from abroad uh, was going to be entertained by friends here, and he wanted to be polite, so he got a little phrase book, you know, uh, he looked it down quickly, so to the astonishment of everybody in the uh, afternoon uh, tea party, he says, um, uh, yes, you, me, you give me another bucket of tea, yes? And they all looked at a bucket, we don't say a bucket of tea, but he turned up his book, bucket, receptacle for liquid, oh, I've got the bucket, you see? So, what our saviour said was, keep on taking water until everybody in this little company knows it's only water in the world. Now then, draw out now, don't bring it to me. Take it straight away to the governor of the feast and there's your wine. And it was that he manifested his glory. Well, if I'm going to do that with eight signs, I shan't be able to get through 20 minutes unless I start working miracles, you see. 
But I felt it was wise to drop that hint to you. Watch every word and make sure it's based upon its usage. Well now, that was a very simple miracle. Our Saviour was there, invited as a guest, and all that he did was to come to the rescue of a little country wedding. That's all it was. Cana was a little village, and uh, we may not have felt there was any worry about it, but in the custom, they would have blessed the bride and the bridegroom, they would have had a little cup of wine to have given them the last good wishes, and if it all petered out, they said, oh, well, there's some sort of cloud hanging over this wedding, and he just did that. Well, now, if you turn to the last chapter, you have the last of these um, signs, the uh, 21st chapter. Now, don't, don't forget this. In chapter 2, our Saviour was almost unknown to anybody except the few. But in chapter 21, he had been raised from the dead, the risen Christ. Well, now you might say, oh, but now, now, the risen Christ will perform a miracle that will stagger humanity. Well, it does, but not in the way we're trying to say. Here we find him standing on the seashore. They have all gone fishing again, feeling that everything had gone to pieces, nothing to hold them. But they caught nothing. He said, children, have you any meat? They answered him, no. He said unto them, I'm reading verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. And so, it says in verse 9, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals therefore there, and the fish lay thereon and bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have caught. And so they did. And in verse 12, he said unto them, Come and dine. So the first miracle provides wine. The last miracle provides, what? A breakfast. It could be so simple that you almost feel, are you quite reverend speaking it like that? But I have a feeling it's done on purpose. As I've expressed before, if God had commissioned me to think of all the miracles that Christ had did, and try to pick out a few that would go with the teaching of the Gospel according to John, which starts, in the beginning was the word, I should have ransacked my mind and history for the most stupendous miracles you could think of. Instead of that, the simplest, most homely and condescending of all miracles are put first and last. And then right in the middle of John's Gospel, we've got the same attitude. Jesus, knowing that he came from God, and went to God, knowing that, he took a towel and girded himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. Again, stooping down, not standing up in magnificence. Perhaps we've got the wrong end of the story, eh? Perhaps we still follow it out when we remember that the Apostle Paul says that through his poverty we might be made rich. His poverty. And the same Apostle Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness and that Christ was crucified in weakness. So the gospel that emphasizes his deity emphasizes his most marvelous condescension. So that's one thing to remember. Pursue that with you as you're looking at all the details of these signs. Now we turn back to the second of these miracles which occupies uh, the next part of the next chapter. Chapter 4, I think it is. Yes. Chapter 4, we read um, 
Verse 46, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You notice? He was at the point of death. He wasn't dead. He was at the point of death. And then he said the word, verse 50, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And we discover that that was the blessed consequence of that healing at the distance. But when we come to the balancing miracle, which you find in the um, 11th chapter, it's not a son who is now at the point of death, it's a beloved brother who is dead and buried and been buried for four days. You see the movement now. This child was at the point of death and he was delivered. Now we have the son, we have the brother with two mourning sisters and Christ absent and nothing done, apparently. Let's notice. Chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And when they sent word to him to say, He whom thou lovest is sick, verse 4, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, you may say, well, that's a contradiction, because he died. No, he doesn't mean that. He means to say, even though Lazarus dies, this is not on purpose that he should die, but that whatever takes place, it should be ultimately to the glory of God. So, strangely enough, it says that even though he loved him, when, verse 6, when he had heard therefore that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now that's an extraordinary providence, isn't it? Have you never experienced that in your life? You've prayed to God for something, and he seems to make no inter intervention on your behalf. He whom thou lovest is sick, and when our Saviour arrived there, Martha immediately said, Lord, if thou hadst only come, our brother had not died. And then when he met Mary, he said, she said, if you'd only come, our brother had not died. And evidently talked it over and said, we can't make this out. Well, that's sometimes what we have to remember in the providence of God. And there's Lazarus, dead, buried, the stone sealed up. And that's always hopeless now, it's four days. And then we have this marvellous fact. Our Saviour stood at a grave with a man dead and buried. And before he had ever shown that he could do it, he said it. Now, that shows you his knowledge of his power, doesn't it? He could have said it afterwards, of course, but he said it before. This is what he said. Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, we say those words so quickly. But is it, is it possible for any one of us to really enter into them and understand how any man could stand in a graveyard and say those words, unless he be as this Son of God is set forth to be, something more than a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, or Adam. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever is living and believing in me, that's at the future second coming, shall never die. Believest thou this? And then he stood at the grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And so he gives an evidence that what he said in chapter 5 is going to be true. 
The dead shall hear his voice, and they that hear shall live. For that is the second and the seventh of these signs. Now, the rest of them I shall have to go over very, very quickly before the end of this particular uh, session. You go back to chapter 5, and you have a sick man, a lame man, at a pool. And he is miraculously healed. And this one is balanced. Oh, and the, and the great insistence here about this man at the pool is that it was wrought on the Sabbath day. And that seems to have been the thought that dominated these minds. They didn't marvel at the healing of the man. Their one thought was that he was healed on the Sabbath day, and so they plotted his death. This one is balanced by chapter 9, where we have the blind man, who was blind from his birth, and he also is associated with a pool. In the first, the other miracle, he was waiting to be let down into the pool. In this miracle, our Saviour sends him to the pool in order that he may be cleansed. So shall we look at that? And Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Do you see the same argument as about the about Lazarus? See, it, Lazarus did die, but our Saviour said, oh, this is not unto death, but that the glory of God might be manifested in him. And so, our Saviour didn't say that this man had never sinned, or his parents had never sinned. He said, oh, no, no, that's not in it at all. He was allowed to be born blindly, because this is the moment for which he was created, that God should be glorified in him. Strange providences, nevertheless, written for our learning. And then you remember, in verse 7, he said unto them, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So we've got the pool again, relating these two miracles or signs together. Well then, as our time is up, in the centre of these eight signs, we have the feeding of the five thousand, and then the walking upon the sea. And these have been brought forward by John, in order that he may make it manifest that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. I would just concentrate just a moment or two in chapter 6 on one particular point. After the feeding of the 5,000, our Saviour said, verse 27, labour not, I'm going to translate that work, you'll see why in a minute, work not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then they said unto him, See, God the Father has sealed him. Oh, he has, has he? They said unto him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This, now I'm going to take it straight away without long argument, this miracle that I have wrought is the work of God with the object that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Oh, I see. You didn't work this miracle. This is the work of God. They said unto him, What sign showest thou therefore? that we may believe thee. And what does thou work? Do you see the argument? And then he turns it right away and he says, Our fathers, they said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven. No, he said he didn't. Moses gave you enough that bread, but my father, just the same as I'm telling you. And I am that true bread. And so he goes on to the next story. Well, I'll leave that with you, young people. 
we uh, are not able to devote more time than this 20 minutes and I'll leave it for you now to piece together these eight signs and realize some of the wonders of their selection and the way in which they contribute to build up before us some evidences to enable us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life through his name.